0: So, this show is Carbon Positive. We've partnered with Carbon Positive to allow us to get to that point. Listen to the show to find out how you also can become carbon positive. I have one GSSE, I'm dyslexic, I'm dyspraxic, and I have mild ADHD, which makes things rather exciting when trying to run a business. However, I have built multi-million pound businesses with no investment, and now I invest in others. And guess what? I love every minute. I'm Oliver Bruce. This is my podcast, Success is in the Mind, and welcome to the journey a podcast where we speak to founders and entrepreneurs from the businesses that you've always wanted to know more about. We delve into the formative years of their business lives and ask those with the inside track on startup and scale-up life the questions I wish I knew the answers to when I started out. As always, the more you share and subscribe to this podcast, the more people that'll be able to learn, enjoy, and avoid the mistakes that so many make. So, when should you raise VC funding? Should founders give all employees equity, and what do acronyms banded around in boardrooms like SEIS, EIS, TAM, and VAT actually mean to founders like you? We'll shed light on just how many founders are neurologically diverse, and we'll show you how to get through tough times when things inevitably get hard. I'm Oliver Bruce, and welcome to Success Is In The Mind, The Journey.
1: We knew what we wanted to get out of Design My Night. And I think founders don't talk about that enough. Like, you know, to be frank, yeah, we wanted to go on the journey. Yes, we didn't want to work in corporate anymore. But actually, one of the main drivers was becoming financially free in our 30s. If you do not trust your founder to do the tasks successfully and you have to micromanage them, then... I would suggest that's not a pairing that should be going into business together. You just know as a founder, you can't have the same expectations that you put on yourself as you do on your team. Don't let the highs get too high and don't let the lows get too low. So if you're successful and you've had a, a big win or you've raised money or you've got a big client, don't get carried away.
0: So, hey, Nick, thank you so much for coming on. Look, you were born and now you're here. What, what happened in between?
1: Quite a lot. <laughs> Hopefully I'm, I'm older than I look. Um, yeah, it's been a, a long old journey to get where I am today, uh, but we've had a lot of fun along the way, lots of ups and downs, but uh, yeah, delighted where I am at the moment. Yeah, you've done really, really well. You obviously uh, started uh, Design My Night back in the day you
0: exited Design My Night. Just talk to me about that briefly in terms of how you came up with the concept, how you started it and how you exited it.
1: I'll, I'll try and do it brief. So it was a 10-year journey. Um, <laughs> we... Came up with the idea, when I say we, it was my, my best friend at university. So we met, we won university, stayed, stayed mates, um, went off into our corporate worlds, um, and then just came up with the idea of Design My Night when we were in New York, actually. Um, so we were ha- actually having quite a heavy drinking session on frozen margaritas in New York. And the the seed idea for Design My Night was planted then. And then when we went home, we refined the idea a bit more, um, and then, yeah, went on went on a bit of a crazy ride. Um, I suppose the highlights were there was bootstraps. We only ever raised half a million from Six Angels. Um, we grew it to over 100 people. Uh, we pivoted halfway through from a B2C platform that when we sold, one in six Londoners uh, were using every month. Um, but we were also in 22 cities in the UK. Um but we then pivoted to, to a SaaS model as well. So we built a reservations platform to compete with the likes of OpenTable. We built a ticketing platform to compete with the likes of Ticketmaster and Eventbrite. And then right at the end, we built a sort of e-vouchering tool as well. Um, so we built that for seven years, um, exited in 2017 to a company called The Access Group in the UK. So they're, they're a unicorn over here. Um, and then we had a two-year earn out uh, with them. Um, which took us to the end of 2019. Um, and from there, uh, was was fully exited and, and have nothing to do with the business now. And there's
0: two points that I'll pick up on on that that were kind of top and tail. So, the, the half a million bootstrapped, I'm interested in, then the earn out, because the earn out for some people is a new concept depending on what sector y- y- you're actually in. So, looking at that kind of half a million quid uh, angel fund that you did across the six investors, you know why only half a million quid and how did you scale it to where you did with only that amount of cash?
1: Yeah, i think so this was back in 2010 when we actually started it um and andrew and i were like uh mid to early 20s so it was it was all new to us as i said mm-hmm. we came from corporate so we didn't really understand the world of angel investing um it wasn't as sort of fervent as it is today especially in the uk um you know i think we just looked at it as this silicon valley thing. we weren't you know that au fait with that whole world so we just okay, well, let's just grow a business. So it was more just sort of rolling with the punches rather than, oh, we need to go and raise a big amount of money. Um, and we just ran it very leanly and did the classic of pouring every bit of money that we earned back into the business. Pivoting to SaaS was great for us because that's obviously like monthly confirmed revenue. And the people that we hired and the things we did had to all sort of move the needle from a revenue point of view. So there was very little wastage. Um, and no, when we exited, we were running at about a 48% EBITDA margin, Blimey. so it, it was a very profitable business. Wow. Um, so we were able to just constantly reinvest that money into the business to grow it. That's a massive EBITDA. You've got 100 plus staff. You've only raised half a million quid and, and you're running at 48%. That's enormous. What were you generating
0: in terms of revenue?
1: We were around sort of five, six mil plus. And a big majority of that was SaaS. And look, that's and as an investor now as well. That's why I love SaaS, because, you know, if you get that product market fit for us to go and sign up a huge pub group that might be worth 150 grand a year to us actually requires very little money, Um, you know, but basically customer success and account management. So um that's the beauty of SaaS, and uh, that's why we we're very lucky that we decided to pivot into that world.
0: And I suppose in terms of the exit and the, the earnouts, an interesting one because us in the agency world, you know, we will inevitably have an earnout. That is just how it works. But if you're selling other businesses, you don't necessarily always have an earnout. So, how come in Desi-
1: at Design My Night did you guys have to go through that if it was a SaaS business? I think still in SaaS, um, earnouts are quite common. Um, you know, the, the, this, this company that really has no idea how you run, um, you know, an acquisition process can actually be relatively quick. Um, you know, they did some deep diving, but you're never really into the day-to-day running of the business and how we deal with customers, how we deal with clients, how we on uh, the roadmap of the product, um, how are we looking to be the competitors. You know, there's so much below that um, than just buying a company uh, that's doing well. Um, so I think they obviously want to protect their investment. Um, you've got to make sure as a founder that it's uh, financially viable for you as well. So we, we made sure that if we're going to stay for two years that the rewards would be good if we hit certain targets and that was part of the exit negotiation. Um, so I think it is pretty common. Um, you know, one to three years uh, is quite common. Um, it's really tough. It's a total change of culture. You're suddenly not in charge anymore um, while still having to hit revenue figures um, and still making the team feel comfortable that with these new owners, everything's still going to be OK. Um, so it was quite an emotional drain on both of us. Um, but at the same time, we're just hyper focused to make sure we hit those revenue targets.
0: So, did you personally diversify your yourself whilst going through that earnout stage? Obviously, you had the KPIs with the person that purchased you, but did you continue to use, say, the initial fund that you had or the initial kind of offering of X number of pounds to invest in people and 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 to do other things, or did you just basically compound yourself and focus on getting through those KPI objectives?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's probably the negative of an earnout, even for the acquirer themselves, is you then fall into the trap of short-termism. So Andrew and I were you know, looking at any new feature, any new money that needs to be spent, would, would that drive revenue? And quickly, yes or no. So you sort of lose your long-term strategic thinking that you've done over the last sort of seven, eight years. Um, and mm-hmm. we became just hyper-focused on the revenue levers within the business. So probably made poorer long-term product decisions and maybe company strategy decisions to get the quick win of revenue. Um, But at the same token, the targets were quite big. We hit those targets. So, actually, the company that acquired us had a much more valuable business at the end of the earnout than they did when they bought us two years previously. So, it, it, it ended up as a win win for everyone. And then you kind of transitioned
0: into, into starting Trumpet, right? Which is fundamentally the business that you've got today. But you said that, you know, pre concept, you, you went for VC funding. Did you, wh- why did you use someone else's cash and not put your own in? Or, or did you split the difference?
1: Yeah, so we did put our own um, own money in to start it. So we had we sort of had a year off. So obviously COVID hit, so um, we were sort of refined to to our our separate houses. Um, and I think we thought we would take longer off, um, but you know, obviously being stuck at home for COVID, we were like, okay, well, you know, let let's let's go again. The the nice thing I think with this journey is there's a lot less pressure financially. So we don't have to do this financially. It's because of the love of building startups so andrew and i more had a a a discussion around purpose in life um you know still relatively young um um you know we didn't just want to sit on the beach or play golf all day we're too young for that so we were like well what what do we enjoy what do we Mm -hmm. love and it was actually building startups so you know we got sort of back into the mode of ideating we came out with around six or seven different ideas after um we tried to validate them all trumpet came out on top um, and then Andrew and I did invest quite a chunk of money to build the brand, build the first uh, product, uh, sort of MVP, um, and bringing on our third co-founder, Rory. Um, so we sort of funded all of that. Um, and then we got it to a stage where it was sort of VC-backable. Um, so, yeah, that also showed the VC how much we believe in the business, that we essentially did our own pre-seed for it.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Huel, and I want to talk to you about the Huel Black Edition, which is a high-protein meal with everything your body needs in a complete shake. All you need to do is add two scoops to water, and you've got yourself 26 essential vitamins and minerals, and 40 grams of protein in one 400-calorie serving. I'm sure many of you can relate to not being able to get a nutritious breakfast or lunch in your working week, and I've found that Huel is the answer. It automates what you do for those meals, so in the morning, I don't have to think about it. I add water, two scoops, shake and go. It eliminates the possibility of making those questionable breakfast decisions. And I know I've got the protein, I've got the calories and I've got the vitamins. During the working day, just automate it. Make it easy for yourself. There's all sorts of good stuff in Huel. Vitamin D, C, E, iron, fibre, protein. It saves me time and it saves you that decision making process that sometimes leads to you choosing the more unhealthy option. So if you want to try it, go to Huel.com forward slash success that's h u e l dot com forward slash success and you'll get a free t-shirt and a shaker with your first order back to the episode and do you think that's really important when starting a company irrespective of what sector or an industry it is in to to put some skin in the game for instance and whether it's 10 grand 100 grand a million pounds whatever you can afford is that critical to getting the buy-in from a vc or can you can you get the cash without putting your own in
1: yeah, I don't think you have to put your own in. You know, we were obviously in a very fortunate position that we had the cash. And you know, I'm a big champion of underrepresented founders, and um, you know, not everyone has you know even ten quid to, to put into a new new startup, but they've just got a great idea. Um, so I don't think it's it's necessary. It depends, you know, who you're speaking to from a VC point of view, what valuation you're looking for big bit of advice i give to a lot of founders i speak to now that just think they want to raise and raise big is look why don't you go out and try and raise 50 to 100 grand from angels have a very realistic valuation um, that amount of money means you won't have to give up much much equity but then use that money to show proof of concept and then it then you can go and speak to a bc and you'll you'll probably have more chance um, and even doing sort of continuation of rounds. So, you know, go and raise a hundred grand and then go and raise another hundred grand. You don't have to raise 500 grand, you know, all in in one go. Um, And again, that's a way of protecting your equity because your valuation should increase year on year on year if you're getting more proof of concept and customers. So when I speak to to founders, to be honest, I never ask them, how have you put in money to start this business? It's not really of interest to me. Um, more in sort of their background and what led them to want to do this startup and do they have the grit and determination that they're going to need to make it successful. That's sort of what I'm looking for.
0: Okay, interesting. Because obviously when you go for multiple different fund rounds, it can distract or detract from what you're actually doing in terms of growth because you're constantly chasing the next pound or penny, for instance. Now, uh, in terms of perception, a lot of people do perceive that actually you do a big fund, you do a couple of other big funds, and then you might be okay. But it's really interesting to hear that you can do multiple different funds. In terms of what you look for them when you're investing in a founder or a business, what are those kind of tick boxes that you want to see that people need to put in front of you to, to win you over?
1: Yeah, the obvious ones are a clear problem and solution. It, sound, it sounds obvious, but a lot of the times I'll see a pitch deck and I'm still sort of six, seven slides in and I'm not sure what they're yeah. actually solving and how. So just a very clear, concise, this is a problem we found, this is the solution on how we're going to solve that problem. Um, whether that be B2C or B2B uh, or SaaS or, or anything, you just need to have that clearly defined gap in the market or problem and then a solution. The team, obviously, so the founder or founders themselves, um, what, what relevant experience do you have? Uh, if you don't have business experience, what in your personal life has, has brought you to today to, to, to give you that will and determination to succeed? You know, as, as an investor that's been a founder and is a founder, I know how hard it is. So it's, a lot of people ask me like, how, how, do I, how do I judge if I think that person has the, the determination? And it's really tough. I think it's just a, a gut feeling when I speak to them. I, I feel like I know within five or 10 minutes if they've got what it takes. Um, another great quality that I look for is to, to be able to sell. So even if you're not a salesperson. Um, as a founder or founders, one of you needs the gift of the gab because you'll, you'll have to sell yourself to investors. You'll have to be the first one selling your product. Um, you'll have to speak to customers. And, you know, if, if your founders are just don't have that and want to hide behind a laptop, then I think, you know, you'll find it very difficult to succeed. So, so problem solution, team slash founders uh, are probably the most important things for me.
0: And in terms of when you then started Trumpet, because essentially, and it's it's worth you very much explaining what what Trumpet does. But it's such an obvious problem, almost so obvious that people go, "No, nah, it's definitely been done." But it, it just hasn't. But go on, explain what Trumpet does.
1: So yeah, so our vision was to to sort of create better buyer journeys for sales teams. So what that means in reality is. In sales teams, you would do your cold outreach and you do that with a PDF or you know Google Slides. Um, and actually only 6% of PDFs ever get open. They're attached to cold outreach emails, so it's tiny. Um, then if you are lucky and you get the demo booked, the average buyer journey length from that demo to deal close is around 80 days um, and over 50 emails back and forward. So it's, it, it was the only sort of sector that we saw looking back at our journey of Design My Night that was still undigitized. So it was just tons of emails, tons of chasing. You're sending video content back and forward and use cases and case studies, and you're trying to nudge the buyer along. And then you're not thinking about the buyer as well. So then for a buyer, you wanna give them the opportunity to make a decision quickly and easily. So for us, it was about creating these centralized microsites where everything can go into that microsite. And then actually within this microsite, you've got use cases, video content, audio content, um, proposals. It's all contained in a beautiful personalized microsite that the buyer can then share internally as well. So they can just share this microsite internally and say, hey, look, I'm interested in this company called Trumpet. Here's everything we need to know about Trumpet. You can also chat back and forth with the customer within the microsite. Um, And it helps them to just make that decision a lot quicker. Um, So, yeah, it's sort of... Centralizing and adding collaboration to a buyer journey, which is is very fragmented at the moment. And just
0: talk to me about how it's built, then, because that's really interesting. Is it is it built through your own software? I.e., have you developed it yourself, or have you just plugged in lots of different elements and just reskinned it for now? You know, what does that look like? Because so many people, when they're starting, have to make a Frankenstein to a certain extent of a product just to get it across the line. Is yours yeah. all singing, all dancing yet, or is it still very much a Frankenstein?
1: And that's where we're fortunate. So because we invested at the start, it's it's very much all singing all dancing. Like when we released what we called the beta version, like users were like, this is like a series A product already. Um, so we sort of did the opposite of the famous book, The Lean Startup, where it's, you know, as you say, just throw out a Frankenstein that you're not very proud of. It's not really Andrew and I's way of doing things. Uh, like We had the funds to create something beautiful. Um, and for us, when you're trying to convince a new vertical, so let's say salespeople, and especially salespeople who are always on the go, uh, doing a hundred things at once, just want to be selling, you have to give them a tool that's really intuitive, really easy to use and actually quite fun to use as well. Um, and, you know, we didn't want this Frankenstein buggy product. So, you know, we developed developed it for about six, seven months before we brought in our own internal development team who have then taken it to new heights already. Um, and another big part was collaborations. So, you know, we've collaborated already with like HubSpot, Salesforce, Loom, Vidyard, uh, you know, all of the sales tools that you can then drop into these microsites as well. So, it's about creating our own system, um, but also collaborating with all the tools that salespeople already use.
0: And just talk to me in terms of the collaboration with these other brands that are so astronomically big like Salesforce and HubSpot that, that one, when starting out, would go, yeah, maybe in two or three years' time once we've grown a little bit. How would you go and knock
1: on the door of HubSpot and go, guys, let's do something together? Well, that that's quite difficult the beauty is you don't even have to so a lot of these tech forwards you know sort of scale ups let's call them um have open apis so it just fully it, it further enhances their product as well you know the more integrations they have so it's about going out finding the open api um and then just integrating it yourself something like salesforce we haven't spoken to anyone but we've integrated with them back in the day especially when we started design my night tech systems were very separate Um, and if you think in, in hospitality, designer and I, we had our booking system and then you've got an HR system and then you've got your till system and then you've got your rostering system. And then you've got your kitchen screen system, all these separate bits of software. Now clients expect joined up thinking. So, you know, you have to create open APIs that anyone can get access to. Um, so it's never been better to build. A, a tool like Trumpet where you just put in all these APIs and create a centralized space.
0: And it's really interesting to understand as to why you went into business again with your with your old business partner, Andrew, for instance, because you know there are founders out there that consistently go into business with those that they know because it worked once, so it, it may well work again. But in terms of in terms of going into business with Andrew, A for the first time and B for the second, what was the
1: methodology around that? Why bother? Why not just go, actually let's 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 go it alone. I want to do it on my own this time. I think A, because we know how hard the journey is, so I've got huge admiration for, for solo founders out there to take on everything that needs to be done is incredibly tough. Um, we also just complement each other very well. So we have very different skill sets where, so for example, I'm more sales and marketing side and brands, Andrew is more sort of data analytics operations. Um, he doesn't really want to get involved with my side, I don't really want to get involved with his side. So it just works perfect with sort of the jigsaw that fits together. And you know, as very old friends now, we just trust each other implicitly, both professionally and personally. So I think that helps as well, that you don't end up micromanaging each other as founders. So we just let each other, we trust each other to do what they have to do. And if we've got an issue, we know we'll bring it to each other. But that allows you to just focus on what you need to do on your side of the business. If you've got someone you fully trust, if you do not trust your founder to do the tasks successfully and you have to micromanage them, then... I would suggest that's not a pairing that should be going into business together. <laughs>
0: just in terms of, irrespective of the micromanaging of a, of a business partner, but the micromanaging of an employee. How do you make sure that you know you're you're, you're managing them correctly? Because and you're a self-proclaimed uh, individual with potential H- ADHD, and that hasn't actually been, I don't think, officially confirmed. You just said it's a self-proclaimed uh, diagnosis. Now, when you have ADHD and you're managing people, it can seem quite intense. To the person you're managing, how do you deal with that uh, conversation? I suppose
1: so. It's definitely just being self-aware. Uh, so yeah, the way my mind works is there's you know like fifty things going on at once, um, and I've had to work on how to focus my mind. Um, so you know I write a lot down. I, I always have a notebook. I keep all my notebooks. Uh, I don't write things down in my phone. I like to physically write stuff down. I write a, a concise to-do list every day with the stuff that I have to get done. so I don't my mind doesn't pull me in different directions. Um, I'm always thinking about ideas and you know stuff even beyond trumpet, and I'm always questioning things. and that's how I come up with ideas for new businesses. So for me, it's just about harnessing all of that because it's a positive in my mind, but harnessing that down onto paper. Um, so you get it out of your head um and and down onto paper which calms me down i also am a big advocate of having conversations with yourself out loud Uh, i think a lot of people if you're stressed you might deal with it internally but actually if i speak out loud to myself it's almost again like getting it out of my mind and out in the ether um and you sort of have a conversation with yourself um, that that's been a really good tactic for me to sort of calm myself down if ever I need to calm myself down in terms of dealing with um, employees yeah it's just I, I I know not to put that hecticness onto them um, and actually all the the tools that I've taught myself um, I teach to my team as well on how to effectively manage their workload um, and and yeah, I, you just know as a founder you can't have the same expectations that you put on yourself as you do on your team. So it's something I've learned over the years, and I think that's one of the benefits of Trumpet now versus Design My like Night, is I'm a much better leader and manager than I was you know, in my mid-20s not having managed a team before. And in terms of, I suppose, when things maybe haven't gone as well as one might have wanted them to go, for instance,
0: how do you, how do you deal with that? So if you've come up against something and it's just not going 100% to plan... What do you do? How do you compartmentalize that and get to the next level?
1: I think one of the the big traits I look for in founders, and it's something I sort of evangelize quite a lot, is, is keeping yourself on an even keel. So don't let the highs get too high and don't let the lows get too low. So if you're successful and you've had a, a big win or you've raised money or you've got a big client, don't get carried away. Um, you know, celebrate that for a minute, and then you're like, back to it. Okay, what do I need to get on with now? Um, don't get carried away with that. So then, equally, when something goes wrong, you have that same attitude. So you're like, okay, that sucks. That's gone badly. It's done. Let's crack on again. Um, so, if you have that level of control, and it's not easy to do. Um, And you just keep yourself on as even keel as much as possible. uh, I think that allows you to deal with the lows a lot better. I just wanted to say
0: I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. And if you are, we'd love it if you could rate it, subscribe to it and share it with friends and colleagues. As you know, the more reach that we get, the bigger the guests become and the more knowledge sharing that we can do. To find out more, head over to successpodcast.co.uk. As a startup or SME, it can be hard to keep your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on 100% of the time. A past guest of the show and now series sponsor, Habu offers solutions to businesses and organisations of varying sizes the ability to pick and pack your product from their D 2 C hubs across Europe. You can now stop asking your partner to help box up a recent order, and your living room will no longer be filled with boxes from floor to ceiling. Instead, the team at Habu will do all of this for you, and you don't need to worry about size. Habu helps startups with orders of less than 500 parcels a week all the way through to larger organizations with more complexities. So speak to the team at com and quote success pod and see how they can help you. Back to the episode. Have you ever just kind of gone, I'm just not interested in carrying this on? I know you said you think a lot and you, you know, you do have time to yourself, but have you gone, nah, not interested in doing this. I'm just going to exit now? Or have you always wanted to, always wanted to push yourself?
1: I've always wanted to succeed in everything I do. Um I have sort of uh <laughs> as like a sniper's mind of I just need to win on everything I do uh, yeah. which can be quite unhealthy sometimes um, <laughs> but I think that drive to succeed drives me on um, sure towards the end of design my night I think we were both like mentally mm-hmm. exhausted uh, it was an incredibly long journey we were young and and you know we were learning on the job there as, as we went so I think we got to the end where we are like, okay, now is the time to exit, and actually it worked out that it was the right time as well, Um, but never been close to to throwing in the towel because then that would be failing and I I don't want to fail in anything I do.
0: That's really interesting because you started Design My Night when you were, what was it, roughly 25 or so, something like that. Was it 25? Yeah. Yeah, it was 25. And you exited, obviously, seven, eight years later. Now, in terms of being young, granted you were, but actually... Did you just not have enough juice in the tank to keep it going to that sort of
1: decade point? I suppose the earnout took you there, right? We'd always had this vision of like a ten-year journey. Um, we knew we knew what we wanted to get out of Design My Night, and I think founders don't talk about that enough. Like you know, to be frank, yeah, we wanted to go on the journey. Yes, we didn't want to work in corporate anymore. But actually, one of the main drivers was becoming financially free in our thirties to then give us life ahead to focus on what the hell we wanted to do. Um, so, Andrew and I sort of both discussed what financially free looked like to, to each other. Um, and we we really wor- worked towards that goal. Uh, we knew how much revenue we had to get to. We knew how much EBIT we had to get to, to then sell for a multiple that was expected in hospitality. Um, and then that would give us the money that we wanted to then go on and and, and do lots of other projects that, that we're doing now. So, it was quite strategic from a financial point of view, rather than... I just want to build and and run this company for the rest of my life because I love it so much. That was never really in our thinking. That's really interesting because so many founders, so many entrepreneurs think the right
0: answer. And there is no right or wrong, but they think setting up a business for the greater good of X, Y and Z is the reason that they do it. But you essentially had a financial goal in mind to get to, to go, actually, I want to do what I want to do when I'm 30 plus. And I think that's probably the first time I've ever spoken to anyone on this podcast that's gone yeah, I did it for the money, in in truth, uh, and I think I think that's quite refreshing because I think a lot of people do do it for that, but they just never accept it or at least communicate it. And in terms of Trump, is the goal the same? Is the goal to have a bigger boat, or is the goal to very much just make something that is properly disruptive?
1: Yeah, I think you know you you also get to the stage. You know, we've done a lot of reflecting personally, um, and you know, I'm in a privileged position to say it. And and you know, money is great, and money. Money gives you freedom to do what you want to do, but it, money doesn't give you purpose. And I think when you're fortunate enough to have money, um, you realize that purpose actually becomes more and more important because you're not chasing day-to-day to survive. Um, so setting up Trumpet was more just personal goals for us. To ca- can we go again? Uh, can we build something bigger? Can we build something global? um can we take all the learnings of design my night and put that into trumpet we've done a slightly different model by bringing in a third co-founder as well so does that work we've got vc backing so i've got to sit here and say you know we want this to be yeah. a, a global unicorn but Andrew and i said to each other look we we, we won't go again at, until we find a business that is is truly global from day one that self-service um that has product-led growth uh, as one big part of its uh, marketing motion and sort of Trumpet ticked all of those boxes. So as I said at, at the start, we're, it, it's, it's a much, almost less pressurized situation to be in because we're enjoying the journey a lot more. We think we have landed on something. So we we see it more as a challenge rather where Design My Night, it was, okay, well, this has to succeed. Like this is our first go. This, yeah. is, this is how we're going to get financially free. We packed in our jobs. Like this has to work. Mm-hmm. Trumpet uh, sort of, Less pressure, other pressures, of course. Yeah, but we're both enjoying the journey a lot more already.
0: And I thought I read on your LinkedIn the other day about the, uh, the phase two of, of sort of founding a business, and that most really successful entrepreneurs have sold the business for small amounts of money in the first iteration, and the second time around is really when they when they make it, I suppose, to use such a term. Now, obviously, you didn't necessarily sell. Well, I suppose you did in the big scheme of things. You sold Design by Night for potentially a small amount in comparison to to what Trumpet could become. Do you think that that? that logic kind of works for what you're on now?
1: People ask me a lot, you know, what what are the learnings? Like, can you give me the learnings that you've learned over 10 years so I don't make those mistakes? And I always say it's really difficult to pinpoint the exact things we've learned. It's more thousands of smaller parts along the journey that we've come across before, whether it be to do with building a product, uh, processes in the company, uh, building a culture, hiring the right people, Um, doing a product strategy. Like there's just all these little elements that we've done before um, where when we come up against them now, we go, okay, well, what did we do at Design My Night? Okay, well, that worked, that didn't work. Um, And, you know, we're not looking to build a copycat business here. So we want to take Trumpet to the next level. So, okay, well, we did that at Design My Night, that worked. How can we think bigger and sort of 100x how we did that at Design My Night? So it's just sort of constant learnings. And Rory, who we brought in, is a first-time founder, so obviously imparting all of the knowledge that we've learned onto him day to day as well is, is helping him accelerate his growth as a first time founder as well. Yeah, I think it, it just makes it easier <laughs> the <laughs> second time around. It really does, um, especially if you have exited. So you've gone on that whole journey uh, to, to exit rather you know, than setting up a business and failing after a year and then thinking, OK, well, my next one is, is definitely going to happen. The stat I put on LinkedIn was around, you know, they had exited for a small, a small amount was sub $10 million. Um, so they had actually exited. You know, I think people sometimes read that as, well, great. I can set up a business and close it in a year because it failed and then go again, fail at that one, and go again and fail at that one. But I'm learning all along the way. And I'm like, yes, to a certain point, but, you know, it is quite important at some stage to try and succeed on that journey of failure as well. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So in that sense, if you're saying that 10 million dollars is a small amount and below, you exited for more than that, so you were ahead of the curve in terms of the Musk's and the Zuckerberg's of the world, which is which is incredible. But in terms of uh, your, your third co-founder, I suppose the third leg, he landed on his feet, right? If he's into business with you guys and he's a first time
1: founder, how the hell did you come across him, or he come across you? So we knew Rory. He he was working in a hospitality startup actually. Uh, so we. Saw Sort of came across each other during our design my night days he always stayed in touch with us uh he was always very interested in being a founder but wasn't ready yet um and then we actually did a process to find a founder uh, mm-hmm. for, for trumpet sort of like x factor for find a founder um <laughs> and we got like over 200 applications um we put people on you know it's like a seven stage process you know it was it was it was wow. the pivotal hire for us um and then we thought about Rory, and we yeah. were like, "Oh, you know, he always wanted to do it. We know him; super impressed with him. Very smart. So we we spoke to him as well, mm-hmm. um, and he he yeah he bit our bit our, bit our hand off. I um, bet he did. Um, he's been in sales his whole life. He when when we took him, he was the head of Europe for Hotjar, which is a huge yeah, successful scale up. He was leading their European sales division." So, you know, he's a sales expert and this was a sales tool. So when we told him the vision for Trumpet, he was like, oh, my God, yes. Like, we need this. I totally get this. Um, it's the right time for me. Um, so it sort of all fell into place. Like, yes, he was delighted to, to get this job, but we've fallen on our feet with him as well because he's an awesome third founder because, you know, really tough bringing someone into Andrew and I's bond um and way of doing things so andrew and i have had to learn to be open of course and be told that we're wrong and respect that you know word i talked about that andrew and i have we we said to rory from day one we respect you so push us back disagree with us um there's three of us now so we can vote and yes at times like you know rory and i have outvoted andrew and vice versa so it's definitely not andrew and i versus rory so he he slotted in perfectly, so yeah, we couldn't really be happier with, with Rory.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Huel, and I want to talk to you about the Huel Black Edition, which is a high-protein meal with everything your body needs in a complete shake. All you need to do is add two scoops to water, and you've got yourself 26 essential vitamins and minerals, and 40 grams of protein in one 400-calorie serving. If you want to try it, go to Huel.com forward slash success, that's H-U-E-L.com forward slash success, and you'll get a free t-shirt and a shaker with your first order. Back to the episode. So, Nick, in terms of sacrifice, if you actually had to, uh, you know, sacrifice anything to get to where you are today, obviously when you were doing Design My Night, I'm sure uh, because you were younger, you sacrificed uh, a lot more, but now you're with Trumpet, you're slightly older. What does that sacrifice look like?
1: I think Design My Night was saying no to most things. Uh, so, you know, to, to be in your, you, you sort of lost the prime, you know, of your early years being like, you know, mid-20s, so like mid-20s to 30s was pretty much 24 seven thinking about design my night. I didn't really want to go out and drink because I didn't want to hang over and deal with design my night the next day. Um, I know people think running a company like design my night is you're just out partying all the time, but it was the, the, act- the opposite. I never partied as little as when I ran design my night. Um, so I think it was just, yeah, loved ones, friends, families, realizing that the, they're not the number one priority during that time. And like, I've got a clear mission on why I'm doing this and I'm not going to do this forever, but I'm sort of on this journey now. And it doesn't mean I don't want to see you or I don't love you, but you have to understand that sort of Design My Night is, is is everything to me at the moment. So, you know, going on holiday, I would obviously think about Design My Night and have my emails. Uh, weekends, I would work. Um, so, it, yeah, you, you know, you pretty much sacrificed you know, most things that people would consider fun in your twenties for, for the journey to get to where I am now, which for me, I think was worth it. Um, and I'm sort of trying to relive my youth a bit more now. Um, but it's an incredibly, incredibly hard sort of physical and mental journey for sure. I think people underestimate that.
0: Well, at least now you can buy a bottle of grey goose rather than (laughs) turn off. eh? That's a a plus. Uh, (laughs) In terms of the sacrifice, though, and looking at working every single hour, were you one of those founders that literally worked from five or six in the morning all the way through to to midnight and onwards? Or, or, you know, being completely candid, did you sometimes have some days off and weekends? Or was it fully, you know, back to back?
1: I think it was more, I definitely had balance in the amount I worked. Well, you know, not balanced to most people that, you know, would might work a nine to five, but yeah, I definitely wasn't working at like 5.00 AM and finishing at midnight. Um, it's more the just constantly thinking about the business. Um, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're out for dinner with friends, you're thinking about design and I, and they can sort of see you're not a hundred percent present, you know, got to a stage where we had alerts on our phone if the system went down. So I'd be out for dinner and if my phone vibrated in my pocket, My heart would drop and it's probably just my mum phoning me. But in my head I was like, eyes down, panic mode, and I get my phone now and it's mum phoning me and you're like, okay, that's fine. So it's that constant (laughs) being on edge. And and I think that that really took its toll too. So you never fully relax until you're asleep.
0: Yeah. I, I, t- I totally get where you're coming from with that analogy, because um, uh, when I used to go on holiday, I never used to check my phone because if any email, irrespective of if it was work or not, came through and I heard that tone, I thought, there's an issue in the office. And it got to a point where actually I physically turned my phone off in order to go on holiday and switch off mentally, because I, the sound for me was just giving me um, a PTSD, essentially. I just, I just couldn't deal with it. And it's really interesting as a founder how it's difficult to switch off in that instance, but yet you've brought it upon yourself. like You've built a business, you bring that pressure on to yourself, and if you want to relieve yourself of the pressure, it's in your hands to do so. But so many people find it difficult to. At what point did you, with a hundred plus staff, actually be able to go, okay, I can take a step back now? Or did that just not happen?
1: I think probably the last year before we sold it, um I and look, that was part of my failing as in not not allowing the team to just do what they had to do. I didn't need to be on top of everything. Um and on the one hand, that's uh, something I'm really proud of at Design My Night. Like we hired a very young team and grew them into managers. So a lot of our managers at Design My Night weren't hired. They started as juniors in the company and and worked with us for three, four years to then sort of become managers. But on the other hand, then not trusting them. I did trust them, but... Yeah, not being able to step back yourself and think, look, if there is a problem gonna go down, you've got a full customer success team that are gonna deal with it and they'll probably deal with it better than you will now. Um, so I think that final year before we sold, I allowed myself just to focus on the things I should have been focusing on, you know, like more strategy and, and driving revenue rather than the intricacies and the, the ins and outs of day to day. But yeah, it was a really long journey, but something I've hugely taken on with with trumpet now um and hiring great people from the off uh plugging all of our skill gaps and just letting them be excellent and being excellent way more excellent than i could ever be in each each part and as long as i'm there to then piece that all together and then that's me doing my job rather than being in the the sort of day-to-day weeds So, from a leadership
0: point of view, you're hiring, and you've you've got a team of fifteen now, I think, and you've been going for twelve months or so. But in terms of that team, the great people that you've hired and plugged in, do you still go right? I need you to do X, Y, and Z, or do you go? This is a job as finance director or whatever. Off you go, because some people can make the mistake of going hire great people and they will do the job and just let them
1: kind of do their own thing, which sometimes does, sometimes doesn't work. How do you manage that? Yeah, I think it's that balance of giving them direction and strategy. That is our job um, is to point them in the right direction. Like this is, you know, so marketing or finance or you know, th- this is where we want to take the business. In my mind, these are our priorities. Let's say from a marketing point of view. Um, but then it's letting them get on with that day to day and reporting back on how they're doing. So, I still think as founders in the early stage that we are, we should be setting the direction of travel for all the different. Um, divisions within the business so tech as well like we've got our own product strategy Uh, we know where the product needs to get while also listening to our dev team on what we can build what we should build and how long things are going to take but yeah I think people also everyone hates being micromanaged or they say they hate being micromanaged but what I've also learned is people like direction they don't just like being cast alone a people like um, being told they're doing well Um, uh, So you've got to make sure you're giving positive affirmations to your team a lot of the time as well. But also saying, okay, look, these are the priorities we need to focus on. Let's do this for six months and then let's reassess and go and kill those six months on these priorities. Um, and if you need me, I'm here," and obviously checking in with them weekly or every two weeks to see how they're doing. So, it's a a fine balance, I would suggest. So, in terms of that sort of
0: six-month timeline, right? In terms of, right, this is the roadmap, off you go, six months checking, great. What's your burn rate like? Because so many startup founders would not necessarily have the burn rate to go, all right, this is what what we're going to do, going to put the money in there, and and off you go, come back to me in six months. Because, uh, you know, like with you, like with me, you're constantly thinking of things and you constantly go, actually, what if we do that? What if we do that? What if we do that? So, how do you how do you step back and go,
1: right, six months, see you later, we've got enough cash to keep it going. I'll chat to you then. Again, it's that balance so outwardly to the team. It's sort of setting a, let's say, three to six month horizon of where we want to get to. But then at the same token, you as founders, so Andrew, Rory and myself, are constantly, daily, weekly, looking at how the business is moving how the revenue is growing, what levers do we need to change or pull to get it moving faster? And then do we need to change strategy on a particular team? Um, but I don't think that's something you should involve the team with on a day-to-day. So it's, it's setting themselves on a journey where you as founders are then policing that journey from afar and then making adjustments mm-hmm. based on how the business is going. So as founders, we're checking that daily or weekly. Um, but as a team, they know what their next three to six month horizon could look like. Obviously, being part of a startup, you know that that could also change.
0: As a startup or SME, it can be hard to keep your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on 100% of the time. A past guest of the show and now series sponsor Habu offers solutions to businesses and organizations of varying sizes, the ability to pick and pack your product from their D to C hubs across Europe. You can now stop asking your partner to help box up a recent order and your living room will no longer be filled with boxes from floor to ceiling. Instead, the team at Habu will do all of this for you and you don't need to worry about size. Habu helps start Startups with orders of less than 500 parcels a week all the way through to larger organisations with more complexities. So speak to the team at hubu.com and quote success pod and see how they can help you. Back to the episode. And in terms of then for you guys, the six, eight, 12, 24 onward trajectory, surely this is the IPO business. Is that what you're wanting from this? You want it to be global? Do you want to float it, or do you want to plug it into a Salesforce and 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 move on?
1: I think we just want to build this as big as it can be while we're still enjoying it. So um, yes, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the obvious one is yeah, Salesforce or HubSpot can just really like what you're doing and, and acquire you, um, or yeah, you you take that to IPO and, and be you know another you know, another big company. But if you look at the lights of, I think, again, people say IPO, but I've spoken to founders of IPO and it hasn't gone so well. Uh, there's obviously lots of clauses wrapped up into your IPO as well. And um, You know, if you look at the more recent sort of Figma's slacks of this world, we're actually all acquired by bigger companies, you know, like Adobe and stuff and Microsoft. Versus IPOing, um, so I think we 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 have the mission to build a big global company here, um, but we're not yet thinking. You know where where where's the exit going to come from? I think we've just got so much to do before we start thinking about an exit. And if we build it as well as we hope we're going to build it, then the opportunity should arise. 100%. And in terms of making, I suppose, the right amount of
0: noise for a, a Salesforce or a HubSpot to see you, not least do you need to sell a lot and be able to actually deliver on what you're practicing or preaching, but actually market it correctly. What's your ratio in terms of, you know, from a VC point of view, the $2 million you've, you've had injected in, right? What do you spend on marketing versus do you keep in the bank to hire staff? Because that's a mistake that so many founders make and,
1: and sometimes overspend and, and waste money on it. We're always very cautious with marketing. Um... The, the interesting thing with Trumpet is, um, as the name suggests, it's around like making noise and standing out from the crowd. So we have a very sort of B2C flair to a B2B software. So that comes from in the product. So there's fun messaging and sort of moments of joy within the product that people will enjoy. Um, But also from a brand point of view, the way we talk isn't very sort of B2B sales SaaS. Our brand isn't like pale blue and white like most other people's. Our website is different. It has movement. It has flow to it. It's not just sort of a static website with an example and some logos of customers. Um, So I think you can also just be very strategic. Like You don't have to spend a ton of money when it comes to marketing. So you can make noise within communities. Um, LinkedIn has been great for us, so we've built our personal brands on LinkedIn, which costs nothing, Um, and that we can then leverage our personal brands to build the trumpet brand, Um, plugging yourself into the right sort of uh, Reddit communities, Slack communities. Um, In a weird sort of way, sales is huge, it's probably like the hugest vertical in the world, like every company has a sales division really, but at the same time, it's niche in as much as you know where salespeople hang out digitally, So, it's just about getting it into those people, getting the word of mouth spinning, giving them a product that they just love. You know, that's what Slack did. They just enjoyed using it. Devs, engineers wanted to have the Slack sticker on their laptop. Uh, And we're trying to do the same with Trumpet. So, it's actually finally a tool that salespeople can actually love and enjoy that's not a chore, that's helping them do their job and having a bit of fun with them at the same time. Um, So, you know, sending out swag that they want to use and. You know, we've got a slack channel of people literally sending us their photos of them wearing our t-shirt um, <laughs> and we've got people wearing t-shirts at births of babies wow. or in the mountains at people's barbecues someone messaged us saying a friend turned up wearing a trumpet t-shirt and i'm a trumpet user as well why don't i have a t-shirt and we realised that we're both trumpet users just because <laughs> he was wearing the t-shirt so it's just sort of building just a vibe up, really, that people want to be part of, um, and not taking ourselves too seriously in the process. You're going
0: to have a full orchestra
1: soon if there's people that are wearing them at births and, and things <laughs> like
0: that. But that's—I mean, it is—it's a culture. It's a great brand. I love it. I've spoken to—I've uh, spoken to Rory on on a call about us using it, and I, it makes absolute sense. It's very, very simple to use. Um, but in terms of. In terms of the people that are listening to this, whether they're big, small, or medium in terms of business, where do they go to use Trumpet and how can they access it?
1: So yeah, if you want to see uh, around Trumpet, head over to sendtrumpet.com um, and it's self-serve. So If you're small or medium, you can just get going for free and to set up an account and get pay- paying. If you're a, a bigger company, you can contact us from our website and we'll be in touch to do something a bit more bespoke with you. Um, check out our LinkedIn as well, um, just put in Trumpet and you'll see us. Um, and follow us on LinkedIn, because uh, we're constantly talking about our journey trying to build this business as well. I feel like we need a fanfare to end this, but Nick, thank <laughs> yeah. you ever so much. I, I want a lot of <laughs> trump noises in the post-edit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that. Right. No, Daisy. Um, but no, Nick, thank you so much, Nick. I really appreciate it. And best of luck with Trump. I think it's brilliant. And here's a little message from our carbon offset partners, Carbon Positive. So hey Andrew I, just, I thank you so much for joining us We obviously wanted to introduce you because you guys are happily uh, supporting us from a carbon positive point of view trying to get the the podcast carbon positive over the next twelve months but I wanted you to tell the listeners why you chose this podcast and you know
2: what's so special about carbon positive from a non for profit point of view so we decided to Choose Success in the Mind podcast for a couple of reasons. It's not necessarily our absolute forte because of uh, our position being a being a not for profit but uh, it definitely aligns with some of the aspects that we do uh, and that we want to support podcasts with in particular. We want to make it easy for podcasts to be able to to be able to become carbon positive and to be able to make their podcast environmentally friendly and show their listeners that they have a social conscience. We understand that it's difficult for people and it takes a lot of time sometimes and we wanted to give podcasts the tools to be able to Calculate and offset their carbon footprint throughout their whole podcast, which goes from everything from production to their listeners across the world, and to be able to offset that footprint and become a carbon-positive podcast.
0: So, I mean, for us, it's it's something quite close to our heart. From a business point of view, we're very much focusing on becoming carbon neutral. Now, with regards to the podcast, you guys are kindly helping us along the way of becoming carbon-positive, so 120% uh, uh, uplift on, on that, essentially. Just talk to me about how you're going to make our podcast carbon-positive over the next 12 months
2: we essentially use an algorithm to calculate the carbon footprint of every podcast so with that algorithm takes into account lots of different factors basically everything from a listener location listener device choices global electricity consumption for example with the device choices if someone was to listen to a podcast on a mobile phone it's 600 times less energy intensive than if they were to listen to it on a laptop or computer for example so we'll take all of that information and we'll create a custom plan that will be specifically tailored towards successes in the mind that will help us in two ways it'll help us to make sure that we can keep really up-to-date statistics for every single podcast. And it will also give us a good idea to make sure that the algorithm is calculating efficiently.
0: You know, you're A, non-for-profit business. B, um, I don't think you've necessarily worked with podcasts necessarily like ours before. So it's really exciting to be on that journey with you, helping you guys do it. But but similarly, sort of seeing what you guys want from us equally.
2: No, you are. You are um, absolutely our first major case study, which is super exciting for us because it really gives us some in-depth data that we can use to help every other podcast. 80 to 85% of the podcasts that are produced will be able to offset their carbon footprint for less than the price of a takeaway coffee every month. We see podcasting as, a, as quite a young industry, which means that we have a unique opportunity to be able to get in there early and to support podcasts to become carbon positive and make podcasting the world's first carbon positive medium.
0: It's properly exciting to, to be on that, that, that journey with you, and I know you guys are based out in Switzerland and we're obviously based in the UK, but to be able to come together remotely is is very exciting and to be able to see our podcast become carbon positive over the next 12 months for me um, is just another reason to, to, to get involved in it so thank you very much for asking us to get involved in terms of people that are listening to to this show and every other show where can they go to A. find out more about Carbon Positive um, and B. what do they need to do to get in touch
2: the place to find out more would be to go to our website www.carbonpositive.com but then as we all know every business comes with unavoidable carbon footprint. We understand that offsetting isn't the absolute answer, but we can make the industry better, first of all, and then what is unavoidable footprint, we can try and offset. There'll be a tips and tricks page on the website, which will help to reduce, first of all, and then there's a really short little page on there that you can input two pieces of data, monthly downloads and average listening time and then within two minutes, a podcast can become carbon positive. I think it's worth saying as well, the, um, the footprint of the podcasting industry is 1.7 billion kilograms of carbon per year, just because that doesn't really mean anything to me a year ago, but now it does. It's equivalent to 2 million flights from London to New York every year or alternatively a flight every 15 seconds it's a drop in the ocean as far as the world is concerned but if we can reduce that and obviously eventually bring that down to zero or even bring it into the positive section which is what we're hoping to do then we hope that that should make a difference
0: wow 15 flights a second carbon positive i love it i'm glad we're involved and thank you so much for thinking of us andrew
2: thank you very much oliver for speaking to me